This is the Down East EM Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Down East EM Podcast. My name is Jeff Holmes and I'll be your host for this episode. On this episode, we have Dr. Sam Wood. She is a friend and colleague of mine and she is a smart, smart individual. I love listening to her because I think she makes me just a little bit smarter every time I listen to her as well. So she is triple boarded in emergency medicine, internal medicine, as well as critical care medicine. But with all that smarts, what's great about her is that she is really able to take the literature, boil it down into simple digestible concepts you can really translate to the bedside. So she's going to do that today with the topic of perinnovation cardiac arrest, which sadly is certainly becoming more common in our country with COVID running rampant. So she pushes us a little bit. You know how we think about certainly establishing the airway as a priority and focusing on the anatomy and thinking about the physiology, but she really pushes us a little bit more to think one step further and think about potential perinnovation cardiac arrest. She's going to talk about some of the risk factors for perinnovation cardiac arrest and what the literature says about some of the things that we can do to help stabilize the patient and prevent that uh, horrible outcome after intubation. So my second talk is going to be about preventing PICA. There is a new PICA in our lives. We have a lot of acronyms in medicine. The new PICA I'm going to talk about today is not the adorable little animal that lives in the Rocky Mountains, which I do realize is spelled differently. It's not the PICA where you want to eat ice or baking soda or dirt or whatever. It's not even the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. Believe it or not, there is yet a fourth pica that we now have to know about, and that is peri-intubation cardiac arrest, which the literature is now abbreviating to pica. Peri-intubation cardiac arrest for the patients that we see in the emergency department will occur in about 4% of the patients that we intubate in the ED, which is really striking because the statistics in the OR are that about 0.04% of patients will arrest around the time that we intubate them. And we all know why this is, and you, I, I can assume that everybody in this room has been through this scenario where you look at the patient and you're like, they're going to code after I intubate them. Why are they going to code? Well, we know that we take their already very precarious physiology and we just completely dismantle it. We take away their sympathetic drive. We take them from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation, decreasing their venous return. We give them medications that make them hypotensive. We take high-risk underlying problems like bad reactive airway disease or acidosis, and we compound it by our hypothetically life-saving procedure of intubating the patient. We can divide the main causes of peri-intubation cardiac arrest into those caused by hypoxia, hemodynamic instability, and what I'm calling high-risk physiology. So hypoxia is kind of obvious, and I think we've had a lot of recent literature and discussions about things like um, uh, nasal cannula, high-flow nasal cannula on patients and pre-oxygenation and all that stuff. Obviously, patients who are hypoxic are at higher risk of arresting when you intubate them. High-risk physiology is those things like bad asthma, where you're like, I'm going to intubate them, and then I know that they're 
going to have very high intrathoracic pressures or acidosis where you know that apneic period is very risky. My focus for this particular talk is on the hemodynamic instability component. And the reason I wanted to talk about this, I think Tim mentioned this before, I think we all like to use our opportunities for sugar low flexors to address our own uncertainties or maybe challenges in the ED. And I felt like I had heard a lot about resuscitate before you intubate, and here's how we should prevent peri-intubation cardiac arrest. But I didn't really know what was backed up by the literature and what was just kind of popular to say in the blogosphere. So here's what I found about the actual literature behind this. One thing I can tell you for sure is that I think the shock index is really important. And if, if you're not already calculating a shock index on your patient that you're about to intubate, you probably should be. Shock index is some really simple math. It's just the patient's heart rate over their systolic blood pressure. And it's been remarkably consistent across the literature that a shock index greater than or equal to 0.9 predicts peri-intubation hypotension and peri-intubation cardiac arrest. So I think if you take nothing else from this lecture, this is something that is gonna change my practice for just for the sake of knowing what that number is, having some predictive marker, I'm gonna start calculating a shock index on everybody before I intubate them. So what do we do, you know, you, you can look at that patient and suspect that they're gonna crump when you intubate them, you can calculate their shock index. What evidence is out there about how to prevent them from arresting or becoming hypotensive after you intubate them. So there is one study from the ICU literature where they initiated this intubation bundle. And after they initiated the bundle, they found their post-intubation complications dropped by 10%, which sounds pretty good, except the problem is that, as with any study like this, you don't really know which part of the bundle was the effective portion. And then additionally, in this study in particular, they had some things in the, in, the, in the bundle that we might be a little skeptical of, potentially. And then they had some things that they hadn't been doing before that they started doing that we're doing routinely already, like capnography and using atomidate or ketamine as opposed to propofol. So it's great that they had their, their complications drop, but I don't know that this actually helps us know what interventions are going to help us in the ED. So this study that Sam is quoting is from uh, Jabber et al. It's entitled, An Intervention to Decrease Complications Related to Endotracheal Innovation in the Intensive Care Unit, a prospective multi-center study. This was in February 2010 of intensive care medicine. And with the intervention bundle items included were the following, having two operators present for intubation, giving a fluid bolus prior to intubation, Preparing long-term sedation prior to intubation. Preoxygenating for three minutes with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Using RSI with either Atomidate or Ketamine and Sucks. The Selic maneuver. Capnography to confirm two-placement. Norepinephrine if the diastolic blood pressure was less than 35 after intubation. And finally, a lung protective ventilation strategy. So I think a lot of these make sense. Um, I, I agree with Sam. It's hard really in these um, bundle studies of interventions to, to really tease out which one was the uh, had the most impact and really decrease that perinnovation cardiac arrest rate. I think a lot of these make sense. And I think I kind of bundle them into things to maximize the patient's physiology prior to intubation and things after the intubation to maximize their physiologies to avoid that peri-intubation cardiac arrest. I certainly don't think it was the Selig maneuver. 
necessarily that decrease that perinnovation cardiac arrest. So a lot of these we're already doing in the ED, but what I take away from this study is that overall, we need to think a little bit deeper about the patient's physiology. What we can do before intubation to help prep that patient and avoid perinnovation cardiac arrest, and what can we do after intubation to help maximize their physiology and prevent perinnovation cardiac arrest. What about fluids? We like to say resuscitate before you intubate. Well, what data do we actually have about whether that's effective? We have one study where they took patients about to be intubated, randomized them to receive a 500cc bolus of fluid versus no additional fluid, and looked at the rates of hypotension, cardiac arrest, et cetera. And there was no difference in this particular study. It was a little bit complicated because many of the patients had their bolus started, but it didn't get finished before they got intubated. So I don't think we know for sure whether a fluid bolus is, based on the data, is likely to help you in these patients. Probably not likely to be harmful and probably a good thing to do, but no evidence at this point that it's actually gonna help. What about pressors? Well, we've had, I think we've had talks at Sugarloaf before about push-dose pressors. And when you look at kind of the bulk and body of this literature, the bottom line is that push-dose pressors increase your blood pressure. Push-dose pressors improve your hemodynamic stability. But we don't have any specific data to say, does using a push-dose presser help prevent peri-intubation cardiac arrest? And we have to take the benefits of push-dose pressors with the drawbacks, which are that across the literature, there's medication errors in 10% of patients who receive push-dose pressors. And the majority of them go on to need an infusion of a vasopressive medication anyway. So I think certainly a great thing to have in your pocket, but the evidence doesn't yet tell us, oh, if you give this presser to get the blood pressure to this number, now you're less likely to have peri-intubation cardiac arrest. What about other medications? What about our induction medications? So we know that you want to avoid propofol in these folks, which I think we all do. You want to avoid benzos. We're skeptical of atomidate because of the adrenal suppression, et cetera. And so much of this discussion centers around ketamine, which I think has become really our go-to choice for hemodynamically tenuous patients that we're about to intubate. Really interesting, if you take just heart cells and you put them in a Petri dish and you put ketamine on them, it's actually a negative inotrope. The reason that we see it as a hemodynamically stable drug is that that negative inotropy is offset by the catecholamine release that gives you the increased heart rate, increased cardiac output, increased blood pressure. So this brings up the question, you know, what if I have this patient who is already sympathetically delete, delete, depleted, like this patient has been in sympathetic surge for so long, is ketamine actually gonna be safe in them? And we have a little bit of information. This is something that I think we're just beginning to get a grip on. So this is a study from the pre-hospital literature looking at patients who, were, who underwent RSI in the field, and they had all had ketamine for induction at whatever dose the medics chose to use. They looked at the shock index of those patients and found that patients with a shock index greater than or equal to nine who got a ketamine induction, 26% of them had hypotension after their induction and intubation. For those with a shock index greater than 0.9, or sorry, less than 0.9, only 2%. So I think this might suggest to us that ketamine in that really uh, tenuous, precarious patient maybe is not quite as safe as we think it is. Unfortunately, nobody has a great answer for what to do about that. A lot of the like blog posts and 
Twitter will say, you know, like the things that I see on the internet are all about using a sub-sympatholytic dose of ketamine with no supportive evidence behind it. So people are saying, let's do instead 0.25 to 0.5 mg per kg of ketamine. I have a little skepticism of this. You know, 0.25 mg per kg is kind of in our pain range dosing, not in our dissociation range. And then that 0.5 feels an awful lot like you're getting into that bad middle range of ketamine dosing where you're going to make them confused, altered, paranoid, and then you're going to intubate them and they're going to have a really bad experience. So I'm a little bit skeptical of this. One um, post that I read talked about give them 0.5 mg per kg, see how they're doing, and then give them a little more to see if you can get them adequately dissociated to intubate. That seems kind of reasonable to like maybe titrate it a little bit more. So in the end, uh, there's not, I think this is a very um, active and developing body of research, but if you're going to try to prevent your, your patient you're about to intubate from having a peri-intubation cardiac arrest, the one thing that I will say for sure is just calculate a shock index. I think that that knowledge is probably going to be very useful to you. You definitely want to try to resuscitate before you intubate if you can. You can do that with fluids. You can do it with push-dose pressors. My preference is to hang a drip of uh, norepinephrine or whatever it is you're going to use because then you just have it available and you can titrate it easily as you go through this whole process. But there is no evidence on, oh, if you can get to this number shock index or this number blood pressure, now you're out of the woods. And then use ketamine. Ketamine does seem like the best choice preferentially. Uh, maybe think about using it at a lower dose. And I, I hope that we'll see some more information about that or maybe gain some more clinical experience with whether that is a reasonable strategy to use. The last thing I'll leave you with is one of my favorite quotes from this entire um, research that I did, which was, in the setting of a true emergency, it might not be possible to maximize the patient before you intubate them, right? So we have to acknowledge that if they are, you know, catastrophically hypoxic in front of you, you just might not have that opportunity to resuscitate first. So that's it, preventing pica, and we'll move on. Thanks, Sam. That was an awesome review of the literature on peri-intubation cardiac arrest. I just want to do another quick ultra summary and highlight some of those things again you talked about. So first and foremost, calculate a shock index in all patients prior to intubation. So what's that shock index again? That's heart rate over systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 0.9. If those patients are greater than or equal to 0.9, they're at a higher risk of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. So that's probably the most reliable thing to predict. So now what do we do with it? Well, if there's time, resuscitate first. Give the patient some fluids, some push-dose pressors, and what Sam prefers is, is getting a pressure infusion started early. Now, there's no real clear guidance on you know, what that goal should be, but ideally having that shock index less than 0.9 seems reasonable. How about induction agent? Well, ketamine is probably still the best. There's a little bit of um, uncertainty with the initial dose. There's certainly some studies suggesting that ketamine may not be as safe as originally thought, but it's still probably the best. So probably a subsympatholytic dose, and we're thinking 0.25 to 0.5 mg per kg, but probably what we're going to do is titrate to effect. And lastly, and most importantly, in a real emergency when this is a crash innovation, you know, these risk factors, they, they may not be modifiable, but take your time. 
risk stratify your patient. If you can, resuscitate first and think what you're going to do after the intubation to maximize that patient's physiology and decrease the chance for peri-intubation cardiac arrest. So that's all for now. Uh, if you want to have any comments or questions, you can leave them on our show notes on downacdm.org. And if you want to like what you hear and want to hear more, follow us on iTunes or our RSS feed through your favorite podcast app. Until next time.